Let's pray together, men. Lord Jesus, we do declare you are good this morning. And we are thankful for the gift of your precious word, which so faithfully instructs us and guides us that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. God, we pray this morning that our time would be honoring to your name, that we be faithful to the truth. We pray, God, that by the power of your spirit, we would understand the truth as you illuminate it to us and that you would help us to walk in accordance with it. We love you so much and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, men. It's good to see you. Thank you, Randy, for leading us and Kevin. Uh, just good to hear your voices singing to our great God and Savior. And this morning, it is a special privilege for me just for us to have this time as men to talk about uh, an issue that that is important for us, especially as we think about leading our families. Uh, for those of you who are, are married, your wives, for those of you who have kids or grandchildren, uh, leading them well. I, I, hopefully you understand that the scriptures are clear that God is a God of order. Because of that, it makes sense then that God has a, a specific design for the home and a specific design for the church. And in both of those spheres of authority, God has said that men are to lead. And so we're going to talk about that this morning in a very specific way, one specific skill or quality that, that is required for us as men if we're going to lead our families well. Understand that when it comes to our leadership in the home, we don't have a, a blank check of authority, right? It's not as if we get to do just whatever we want to do as authoritarians in our home or, or elders in the church, for that matter. We are bound to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the authority that stands over all of us as Christ is the head of the church and the head of every Christian. Um, and, and so we, we must make sure that our leadership is in conjunction or underneath that authority. And this morning, before we get to this specific quality or skill that each of us must be growing in and maturing in to lead our families well, I want to I want you to think with me just for a moment about the fact that evangelicalism as a whole um, has has sort of drifted towards this idea of God more like a, a magic genie in a bottle than the sovereign God of the universe. It's sort of a we, we come to God with kind of a, a name-it-and-claim-it theology that if, if I just speak to God what it is I desire and I have enough faith, then I can claim that God is going to make my desires come true, just like the genie in the bottle. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is it's not true. It's not biblical. It's not the way at all that Scripture tells us to think about prayer or about our relationship with God. But with that aside, just as an illustration this morning, I'm not saying this would happen, I'm just saying think about this. If God really did come to you personally in a vision and say to you, ask of me what you will, what would you ask? What would you ask of Now you might say, well, that's a, a silly illustration because that's, that's not going to happen. And, and I would agree with you, it's not going to happen to you as an individual, but it has happened at least once in human history to a man. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God appears to a man named Solomon, the son of David. He's a young Solomon. He's just taken over leadership of the entire nation of Israel. Think about the huge weight that must have been upon his shoulders. God comes to him in a dream and says, Solomon, ask of me what you will. What does he ask for? Wisdom. Wisdom. And God grants that request. And Solomon, of course, became the wisest man on the face of the planet. Kings and queens from afar came to sit and listen to his wisdom. And that was a testimony, ultimately, that Israel was worshiping the one true God. But let me ask you, when I, when I ask you that question, what would you ask of God? Where did wisdom fall on your list? Did it even come to mind? Because Solomon understood, obviously, the, both the priority and the source of wisdom. He understood that, that if he was going to lead effectively God's people, he had to have wisdom. And he also understood if he was going to have wisdom, it had to come from outside of him. It had to come from God to him. And that's what I want to emphasize for us this morning. The quality or characteristic of leadership that we're going to be looking at is that of wisdom. We have to understand what wisdom is, where does it come from, and how can we grow in wisdom so that we can lead our families accordingly. 
Now, we're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. So go ahead and turn there, James chapter 1. And James begins chapter 1, if you're familiar with this letter, you know, with the issue of trials. He spends a lot of time talking about trials and how we as believers are to think about trials. Specifically this morning, we're going to focus on verses 5 to 8. But read with me beginning in verse 1 through 4, just to lay the context of where we're going to be this morning. He begins in James 1, 1, James, a slave of God and of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now he begins this text with this command about what our disposition should be in the midst of trials. What should be the disposition of a Christian as they walk through trials? He says, consider it all joy. The Christian is to be filled with genuine joy as he traverses these different trials that God has sovereignly allowed in our lives. And the key to that joy is in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How is it that a believer can have joy in some of the darkest days of life? It's by understanding that even those dark days come from the hand of a good and sovereign God who intends to use those dark days for your spiritual good, so that you might be spiritually mature. That it brings endurance. That's the, the disposition that we are to have. And we understand from Scripture that God makes no apology for the fact that He sovereignly controls everything in our lives, including the difficult trials that He allows. You remember when Moses was sort of called into the task by God of, of, of overseeing the people of Israel and bringing them out of Egypt back in Exodus chapter 4. When Moses receives this commission from God, initially he says, I'm not the man for the job, right? And what was it that, that Moses used as the excuse to say, here's God, here's what you haven't considered about me as to why I'm not qualified. You remember? He said, I, I don't speak well. We don't know that he had a stutter or a lisp or that he just uh, didn't uh, really uncomfortable speaking in front of people. But Moses says, God, I'm, I'm not eloquent. I'm not the guy to be going in front of Pharaoh and in front of the people. And what does God say in response? Such a, a helpful text. This is Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in past times. He said, I'm I don't speak well, nor since you've spoken to your servant. He says, nothing's happened even since you've commissioned me, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Listen to what God says. Verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now just think about the implications of that. God's very comfortable saying, whatever condition a person is in, I am sovereignly in control of that, and I have brought that to pass for my own good purposes. I mention that just to assure us that includes our trials as well. Whatever they may be, whether they're financial or physical or whatever it may be, whatever trial the Lord allows in your life, they're under His sovereign good hand. Now, the Bible is clear that God is a God of goodness. God of wisdom, a God of grace, and therefore we can trust His sovereignty. We can trust His goodness in the midst of trials, that everything is for our good and for His glory. That's how we maintain this perspective of consider it all joy. That's, that's a, in a nutshell, what James is saying in verses 1 and 4. But that brings us now to verse 5, where I really want us to spend our time this morning, verses 5 to 8, and understanding one crucial factor for maintaining genuine joy in trials. It is the factor of wisdom. If we're going to have the right perspectives in trials, it demands biblical wisdom. Look with me at our text, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one 
he doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Essentially, in one sentence, this is what James wants us to understand this morning. A biblical perspective in trials requires biblical wisdom, which God gives to those who ask in faith. Let me say it again. A biblical perspective in trials requires biblical wisdom, which God gives to those who ask in faith. In order to break this down for us in these verses, James gives us three directives, or three commands about how we are to pursue wisdom in our lives. The first directive, directive number one, is simply this. Ask a gracious God. Ask a gracious God. He begins there in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom. Now let's stop there just for a moment, and let's consider the fact that to a certain degree, Every single one of us sitting here lacks wisdom. Now, when I say that, obviously some of you are wiser than others and have attained to a certain level of wisdom, but let's face it, does anyone here have perfect wisdom? No, only one, and that's God, right? Only God has perfect wisdom, so wherever you are in the wisdom journey of maturity, you still lack wisdom to some degree. You know, some commentators have claimed that James is sort of switching gears here in, in verse 5 and he's leaving this idea of trials and going off on a rabbit trail. But that's not true at all. Notice he says, if any of you lack wisdom, but he ended verse 4 by saying that God's, God's goal for us is to have endurance and for endurance to have its result of us lacking in nothing. He, he uses that word lack or lacking in verse and then again in verse 5. And what he's saying essentially is God's, God's intention for us through trials is to mature to a point that we're not lacking anything spiritually. But the reality is we do still lack. And he says, if you lack wisdom specifically, let me tell you how to pursue wisdom so that you can walk through trials with joy. That's how these two sections tie together. The goal of our spiritual maturity is that we would be lacking in nothing when it comes to our spiritual faith. But here, James hones in on wisdom because it's, it's of central importance. It's of central importance for us if we are going to maintain a biblical perspective. You cannot walk through trials, you can't live life in a way that pleases God apart from true wisdom. For us as men, if we can't personally navigate trials with wisdom, how in the world will we lead our family to do so? How will we lead our wives? How will we lead our children and grandchildren if we ourselves are not wise and walking in wisdom? And so you see the urgency for us this morning. But it does bring up an obvious question. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? I mean, if this is what we're supposed to be seeking, we, we ought to understand what it is, of course. And I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years really meditating on what does the Bible say about wisdom? What does the Bible mean when it uses the word wisdom? Specifically, what does James mean here in our text when he says, if any of you lack wisdom? And to be honest, I don't think we understand wisdom as we should in many cases. It's very easy for us to mix up knowledge and wisdom. Right? In, our, in English, we, we sort of use those somewhat interchangeable, knowledge and wisdom. It's very wise. We might say that of a person because they know a lot, right? But that's not how the Bible uses those two terms. The two terms, they, they do correlate, okay? You have to have knowledge to have wisdom. But because you have knowledge, it doesn't mean you'll have wisdom. So there is a difference, a nuance of difference between the two. So let's define wisdom before we begin. Again, our goal this morning is not to understand what the word means in English, but what did the word mean in the Greek text when the author was using it here in James? The Greek word is Sophia, a word you've probably heard before, the common name. But listen to what, what Kittle says about this Greek word. First of all, he's going to tell us what it meant in the Old Testament, and then he's going to tell us what it means as James uses it, because James is drawing from a Hebrew understanding. Okay, he's using Greek. But he's, he's, he's a Jew, and he's drawing from a Hebrew understanding of wisdom. So let me, I'm just going to read two 
two little paragraphs for you from Kittle, who has a, uh, a Greek lexicon that's very helpful. First of all, here's the Old Testament understanding of wisdom. The translation wise or wisdom is inexact. It catches neither the range nor the precise meaning of the original, that is, in the original language. It suggests experience and competent mastery of life and its various problems. The most common parallels have to do with perception, understanding, or skill, although parallels of uprightness and honesty are also common. Here's the key. The parallels show that action, rather than thought, is the point. In the Old Testament, when wisdom is used, a person is called wise, he says, action or, or is, is really the point rather than thought. Then he goes on to speak specifically of how James is using the word wisdom, Sophia, here in our text. In James, wisdom is a morally upright walk. A morally upright walk. This wisdom does not need to strike and disorder, but to keep. In this regard, it stands in antithesis to the wisdom sought or taught by opponents. It's not speculative, but manifests itself in practical, moral results. Now, let me put all of that together. It, it, let me summarize it in this way. Wisdom is biblical truth lived out. Wisdom is biblical truth lived out. Here's where it separates from knowledge. Your knowledge of Scripture has to be put into action and applied so that your life reflects what you know. The person whose life reflects what they know as a wise person. That's what James is talking about here. Hopefully that helps us boil down what, what we're talking about when we talk about wisdom. It doesn't focus just on our biblical knowledge, but on our ability to apply that knowledge and how much it's affected our character and the way we live. Certainly, wisdom requires knowledge. So I'm not telling you that you're going to be wise apart from knowledge. You need to be studying the Scripture. You need to understand theology. But you can't stop there. There's never God's intention. But that, that theology and that biblical knowledge would be uh, translated into a transformed life. A.T. Roberts says this, that wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. Now he gets it. A man named Ralph Martin says, for the Jewish mind, wisdom meant practical righteousness in everyday living. Practical righteousness in everyday living. And so again, wisdom is biblical truth that lives out. Now, as I said before, how many of us lack wisdom, at least in some regard? Every hand, right? All of us. So this is a relevant text for us today. All of us lack, in fact, we, we lack wisdom so universally that, that James really could have said, because you lack wisdom, or when you lack wisdom, rather than if you lack wisdom. In fact, perhaps you fall into the snare of confusing your level of biblical knowledge with your level of biblical wisdom. That's an easy snare to fall into. And it's true that we're to love God with our whole mind, right? But not just our mind. That's the translate into a changed life. That knowledge must produce spiritual fruit. And we never need more wisdom from God when we're in the midst of a deep, difficult trial. And that's why James connects this idea to this type of life trial. He anticipates if you're in a trial, and these, these Jewish Christians were in, in the trial, these, many of them were, were Jews who, who had come to, to Christ, they're in a difficult time of persecution, a difficult time of hardship. He knows they're going to need biblical wisdom. So let me ask you this, just for your own, inside your own head, answer this question. With this definition of wisdom, in what areas currently do you most lack wisdom? Let me ask it a different way. Where are the areas of sin in your life where you know that the Bible says this, but your life looks like this? That's where you lack wisdom. Where is that? I want you to identify those areas because those are the areas that we need to work on and apply these truths to. The truth is that our wives need husbands who are wise. And our children need fathers who are wise. Your grandchildren need 
grandfather to a wife. I want you to think about this. If we had your wife here this morning, and we asked her this question, how do you think she would answer this question? Would you, would you rather your husband be a theologian or a godly man? What do you think she would say? But what's our temptation to spend our time on, or, or, or feeling pacifying our conscience with this, right? I, I, I manage it. I read my Bible for three hours yesterday. We need to be godly men. We need to bridge the gap. I'm not telling you to take your foot off the gas pedal in learning the Bible and theology. If you're hearing me say that, you're mishearing me. What I'm saying is, Put your foot on the pedal to the metal, learn all that you can, but also put your foot on the pedal to do it, to live it, to be conformed to it. That's what God has called us to. Now, at this point, James gets to the actual first directive or command in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. That phrase, let him ask, is actually a command in the Greek text. It's an imperative. He's saying, ask God. It's a simple directive. It's a present tense imperative or command. That means it should be the ongoing pattern of a Christian life. It should be normal, a regular regular thing. I'm really almost daily throughout the day, God's giving me wisdom in the situation that I might respond and act in a way that's in, in accordance with truth. That's the idea. It should be a regular pattern for the Christian. And what this indicates is that the source of wisdom, again, is God Himself, precisely or specifically His Word. We see this in, in other places in Scripture. Look at Proverbs chapter 2. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, listen to these words. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and climb your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as a as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godliness. God is the source of wisdom. Notice the focus there on if you will receive my word, if you will receive my instruction. Where do we have the words and instruction of God? Where do we have them today? In the scriptures. So when we're talking about God being the source of wisdom and knowledge, we're talking about the fact that He's revealed it to us already on the pages of Scripture. And if you if you doubt that, here's a, another passage. This is one of my favorite sections from Psalm 119. This is Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Listen to the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. That's another way of saying it. Your word, specifically the Old Testament in this case. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I've observed your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I've not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I don't know if you caught it, but on almost line by line, he's using Hebrew poetry, this idea of repetition, of saying the same thing in different ways. It's, I, I love your word, and it affects my life. Right? I love your word, and therefore I keep your word. He says, he says that about eight different ways over and over again, but that's the connection. So when we're talking about God being the source of wisdom, and, and wisdom being our understanding and action, Psalm 119, 97 to 104 gives us that in that paragraph. Now, understand that it is biblical for us to seek wise counsel from other people. But what this text does is it tells us how to do that and whom we should choose, right? 
how do you know if somebody else is truly wise so that they can help you in your time of need? And what are they trying to help you with? According to this understanding, if you want to find someone wise to give you wise counsel, you need to go to someone who knows the Word of God and whose life reflects the Word of God. Not in perfection, but in the overall direction of their life. Say, that is a godly man, because when you go to ask them for wisdom, they're not asking them for tips of the trade, and I did this, and I did that, and my granddad did this. You want them to open the book and say, chapter and verse, this is what you need, and here's how in my life I've lived, sought to live that out. Go and do likewise. That's what we're talking about when we seek biblical counsels and biblical wisdom. But let me ask you this also. How far down the list is prayer when it comes time to need wisdom? I think so, so many times when we need wisdom, we find ourselves going to the bookstore, grabbing a book, finding a podcast, finding a friend, and we haven't prayed. And what this text is doing is it's sort of it's reorienting that list to say the very first thing is ask God. If you need wisdom, friends, the first thing you do is run to God in prayer. Now, you may search the Scriptures and you may pray and you may say, you know what, this is, this is just it's outside of me. I think the Scriptures are saying this, but I need clarity. And so you find a man that's wiser in, in the Scriptures than you are and you go ask. That's fine. But that's after having sought the Lord in prayer and scripture uh, meditation and study. Notice this amazing description that James gives of God here. Verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. He gives to all generously and without reproach. God is ready and willing to impart wisdom to His children who come to Him humbly and ask. He's not withholding His wisdom. He's not trying to make you struggle on your own. In fact, He's gone through great lengths to give you this book that you might study it and know it and internalize it, that the Holy Spirit might illuminate the truth and give you the strength by His grace to walk in it. God desires His people to be wise. He gives to all generously and without reproach. That, that idea of without reproach is without insult. When God's children come to Him humbly with faith like a child and they beg, Father, give me wisdom. I want to honor you in the situation. Help me understand the truth and apply it to this situation. God gives generously and He's not insulted. He doesn't look down on you and get upset that you don't already know. You know, I don't know about you, Ian, but I feel like half my role as a parent is helping my kids find their feet. Anybody else have that uh, reality with you when kids are young? Every day, get in the car. Where are your feet? I, I mean, how hard can you be to keep your shoes on your feet? And so I feel like daily we're restraining. This is what you do. You take your shoes off, you put your shoes here, and voila, the next time you need your shoes, guess where they are? They're right there. But they're not right there, are they? So where are they? Right. So it's like this, it's this, it's this pattern, right? And so my children, unfortunately, because I, I don't have perfect patience like God, I can see they might be a little gun-shy to tell me I can't find my feet because I'm probably going to have the same conversation with them I had yesterday and the day before and the day before. As I, to my own shame, they, they might feel some reproach if they ask me that same question because I don't have perfect patience, though I'm seeking to grow in that. But God does have perfect patience. So he's, when you come to him and say, God, give me wisdom, perhaps even about a similar situation that you asked for wisdom for the day before, he's not looking down at you saying, well, why are you here again? Right? That's what James is saying. Ask him. He gives you all generously and without reproach. So there should be no fear for his children to come asking for wisdom. Notice the result back in verse 5. Ask it of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, the end of the verse, and it will be given to him. It will be given to him. God does not deny his children who come to him humbly in prayer asking for wisdom. He doesn't deny them of that help. Now, it's important to understand what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that you come to God and you pray and he's going to zap you with some supernatural jolt of wisdom. 
Well, all of a sudden, it's closed. I didn't know that before, and now I know. I'm good to go. That's not what James is implying. That's not what he's promising. Instead, he gives you wisdom the way he has promised to give everyone wisdom, and that is in and through his word. As you study the word of God, and you come humbly and say, God, help me to have wisdom, he illuminates the truth of Scripture, and the Spirit gives us grace and strength to walk in accordance with that Scripture. That's how God gives wisdom. So he gives it. He gives it without reserve, freely. And so when we ask God for wisdom, we also ought to have Bible in hand, ready to study and see what the Scriptures say and apply those Scriptures to our own lives. God tests our faith and trials for the purpose of producing spiritual maturity, uh, and, and He does that as He causes us to depend upon Him in prayer and in His Word, and that's how we grow. It's important for us to remember as husbands and as fathers that submission is not easy. It's not easy. The role that those under our authority have of submitting to us is not easy. You know that if you ever had a difficult boss. You know, submission to authority is not an easy thing. But I'll tell you this, we can make it a lot easier on our wives and our children if they have confidence that my husband's leadership is driven by a study of God's Word. That he's not just making decisions because they seem really wise to him in his own mind between his own ears, but he's saying, what does the Bible say? If, If we do that for our families, Submission will never be easy, but it's easier to say, okay, I can trust God because my husband or my dad is not making decisions just based on a whim. He's making decisions based on the scripture. Now, at this point, James gives us a second directive, a second command. Look back at the text in verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. He must ask in faith without any doubting. This, too, is an imperative. He must ask. He's giving us the quality of our asking. He's describing the way in which we must ask. It's not simply enough to to ask God. It must be done with the right heart and the right attitude when we come to God. This is not the same as the name it and claim it doctrine. That when James says this, that you must ask in faith, he's not indicating that we have control over God with our faith, and if I just have enough faith and say it, God's going to do it. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to explain the heart of a Christian and what it should be when he comes and asks God for wisdom specifically. Also, remember, in context, this is the Scripture. You can't pull this phrase out and say, okay, if I ask in faith, he'll give me anything. He's specifically talking about wisdom. When you need wisdom, you come, you ask God, and you ask God in this way, and He will respond. Now, MacArthur adds this. In other words, it must be a request backed by genuine trust in God's character, purpose, and promises. That's what it means to come with faith without doubting. You you can't come. It's it's nonsensical to come and pray to God while doubting that He's listening or cares. You know, you see, you hear of kind of unbelievers when they get in a really tight spot, they're going to say, God, if you're up there, help me out. Now, that is, that, that is not a prayer of faith. You're coming and saying, I, I'm, I'm beginning from a ground of disbelief. But just in case, I'd really like your help. James is saying, no, that's not the kind of asking I'm talking about. I'm talking about coming to God Believing not only in his existence, but believing his character, his word, and his desire to care for his children faithfully. That's the kind of request that God honors, that God hears and responds to. A true believer understands that when we pray in accordance with the will of God, we can have confidence that God will hear and will respond to our request. It pleases him to do so. Now, I don't believe. On the other side, James is saying you must have perfect faith. And if your faith is not perfect in every way, then God will not listen to you. Because we understand that we're not perfect in anything we do. Our, our repentance uh, at times, we need to repent of our repentance. Uh, our, our faith is, is never the fullness of the quality of faith we wish that it was. And so God's not demanding perfect faith, but He is demanding a real faith. You think of, of uh, in the life of Jesus in Mark 9, 24, when um, when a man comes to him asking that Jesus would cast out a demon from his son, and Jesus says, 
that needs to have faith because he must believe. And the man says this, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What is he saying? I, I do genuinely believe. Help me. Help me with that area that of, of my heart that's still struggling. Make my faith stronger. And so don't don't uh, think that you have to have some super hero faith. You need to have a, a real faith in God, always increasing in that faith. But it does bring up the question: Why is it such a big deal to doubt? What is the what's the issue there? Well, James gives us an illustration. He says, I want you to understand what it's like when a person comes to God without faith. He goes on to say this in the rest of verse 6. You must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The man that's characterized by doubt is blown back and forth by every circumstance of life and every new wave of doctrine that pops up on the theological scene. He's just like water, the surface of the water, responding to a heavy wind. The water is completely passive, and whichever direction the wind blows, the, the surface of the water is going to follow that pressure from the wind. This is the man who lacks faith. He's not rock solid. He's not standing still. And so when the storms of life come, he's blown away. He's tossed back and forth. But for the man who has true faith, who is rooted in his faith in God, he is like the man whose life is built on the rock, as Jesus said, so that when the wind and the waves come, he steadfast, not because of himself, but because of his trust in God. Unfortunately, the influence of, of postmodern philosophy has captivated over the last probably decade or, or two decades uh, many Christians. It's caused them to begin to question everything they believe, everything they think. It's dominated many universities. Uh, it's become the popular way of thinking, postmodern philosophy. The ultimate result of that way of thinking is the loss of any sense of a firm foundation of reality. Right? It just rips it out from under us. If there's no absolute truth, and all of our opinions are equally valid, then how can we ultimately pray with biblical faith? How can we pray absolutes to God when we are questioning the idea of absolute truth. Let me encourage you, if you're tempted in any way into the idea that true spirituality is found in embracing a multitude of opinions about theology and God's Word, run in the other direction. Run. Don't walk. Run. The key to maintaining biblical faith is not to look outside of God's Word to a multitude of differing opinions and ways and options. Rather, the key to maintaining biblical faith is to dig deeper and deeper into God's Word and to mine out the truth. That's how we stand rock solid in faith. It's very popular, it sounds very spiritual, to sort of go on a personal quest. I'm going to determine, determine what I believe for myself. Sounds like a, a great thing that, that Oprah might tell us to do. But understand, that is dangerous if, you're, if you mean by that, that I've got to go out and determine for myself because I am the ultimate determiner of truth. If that's what you mean, that is a dangerous quest. The truth is, all of us must own our faith as individuals. You must really believe it, yes. But where you get that faith is by diving into the source of truth and saying, I'm going to believe this. If you're going on a quest for what you believe, take your Bible. Okay? And hunt for it here. Here is where we go on that quest. And that is the path to true faith and true wisdom. Once you're rooted in the truth, now you can stand when the waves and the wind of trials blow against you. I'll say it again. Our families, meaning husbands, dads, and granddads, we lead them in wisdom. And that leadership most often begins in your private life rather than your public life. Your leadership of your family demands that you're a man devoted to private prayer and personal study of the Scriptures. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you'll suddenly be filled with the wisdom that you need in the heat of the moment of the trial. That it's just going to come to you. God's just going to zap you with wisdom if you've not behind the scenes been daily 
in the Word, in prayer, practicing, flexing the muscles of faith, believing God. Don't think that when God throws you the ball of a trial that you're going to be able to catch it if you've not been practicing and honing your skill to trust in God every day, knowing the truth and living the truth. Our wives and our children need to see us face trials with a resolute grasp on the sovereign goodness of God, on the grace of God. They need to see us striving after God, standing firm on His Word, so that when the wind and the waves of life come against us, we do not lose. Because if we are men who are weak in faith, and we try to mix sort of worldly ideas with, with God's ideas, we will be unstable. And the results will be devastating, not just in our personal lives, but for our families as well. And that brings us to the third and final directive from James in this text. Directive number three, recognize the ramifications of doubt. Recognize the ramifications of doubt. Look back at the text, verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. This third command comes in that phrase, ought not to expect. That doesn't seem like a command that is translated into English, but in the Greek text, it is an imperative. Don't expect, is what you might say. Do not expect that you'll receive anything from the Lord if you are in this double-minded, faithless kind of pattern in coming to the Lord in prayer. It's a, it's a warning. The reason that this command becomes clear when you think about how, how about it is it's, it's nonsensical, as we said earlier. Don't think you're going to receive something from God if you come to God doubting that He even exists. Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So true prayer, then, assumes faith. Naturally, it assumes faith. It's an exercise in futility to pray to God while disbelieving that He either hears or cares. That kind of prayer, that kind of sending up a prayer just in case, is as useless as a lucky rabbit's foot. It does you no good. Because it's not real prayer. It's not prayer based in faith. Notice how James describes this person who prays in this way. This is the, the end of the section, verse 8. This is how this man is, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That word double-minded, it means being uncertain about the truth of something, doubting or hesitating. So the double-minded man is one characterized by uncertainty, characterized by doubt, sometimes paralyzed. This kind of person is often paralyzed to make decisions because they're not rooted in the truth, and so they struggle to have any kind of compass in life to make wise decisions. So a lot of times they're just inaccurate, or they just run into foolish decisions. Notice he says he's unstable in all his ways. In all his ways. This is similar, again, to the illustration of the waves being blown by the wind. Now he's moved it to the illustration of an actual human life. A human being who does not trust God, who doesn't know the Lord, and doesn't pray with faith, is just like that wave blown by the wind, only it's his actual life. The life of instability. You, unfortunately, probably know people like this. Well, really, it's not, not you in your life, but hopefully you know people like this. Their life is a wreck. They're constantly being blown around by every single new circumstance in life. That's the unstable, double-minded man. To be successful in attaining this goal of spiritual maturity and wisdom and trials, James has laid out for us this honoring of God must come through a deep, stubborn faith. Stubborn faith. A faith that won't let go of God. That won't let go of the truth of Scripture. That stands in the valley, that stands in the storm, and declares, I will not move from my Savior. I will not move from His Word. I will trust no matter what my eyes see. That's the kind of man that we have to be. Otherwise, we're this unstable man blown to and fro. When I think about stubborn faith, my mind turns to three men in the Old Testament. One of the famous stories in the Old Testament, one we learned in Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember they're exiled from the southern kingdom in Judah as God has allowed the Babylonians to overtake them as punishment for their idolatry. And yet God is still faithful to His people, even in captivity, 
became faithful to his own great name to show to Nebuchadnezzar and all the Babylonians that Yahweh is the one true God. One of those powerful scenes, of course, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story that King Nebuchadnezzar has made this false image. He's commanding that every time the music is played, that everyone bows down and worships this image. It's really is sort of a form of emperor worship. It was Nebuchadnezzar wanting people to worship him. And, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can't do this. They, they believe in the one true God. They, they can't prostrate themselves before an idol. Now, they are caught, obviously. It's pretty, pretty obvious. If everyone else is bowing down, he's not bowing down. There they are, standing. And they get turned in to Nebuchadnezzar. He threatens them, of course, with being thrown into the fiery furnace. This is, it, it, he says here in verse 15, But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? What God is there who can deliver you out of that, he says. Here's the response. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's amazing. That's, that's stubborn faith. They have this fiery furnace on the one side, and they have faithfulness to God on the other side, and they say, O king, we cannot do what you have done. Our God's powerful enough to deliver us from this, and believe we, we believe that he will, but if he, even if he doesn't, we trust him, we're not doing it. That's stubborn faith. And of course, we know the end of the story. God does miraculously deliver them and testifies to the fact that he is the one true God. But let me ask you this morning, how would you describe your faith? Do you have stubborn faith? Faith that won't let go of God, that won't let go of God's truth, regardless of the circumstances? Do you pray with a heart of thanksgiving, recognizing God's goodness towards you? Do you pray with trust, rooted in God's sovereignty and His goodness? Do you ever pray for wisdom? Or do you find that your prayers often simply revolve around physical needs and things that you would like to go differently in your life? Or do you bring to God things like, God, give me sanctification. Make me more like Christ today. God, give me wisdom. God, make me a man of purity. God, make me a man who leads my family well. God, help me to speak with a loving and gentle tone today. Help me to display the richness of Christ. Give me boldness to share the gospel of Christ today. Do you pray for those kinds of things? Of course, God beckons us to bring physical needs, practical needs to Him. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that or that it's wrong to do that. God tells us to pray for those things. But He also commands us to be men of faith who pray for these things. God, build my character. Help me stand. Well, as we close our time, let me just give you three things to consider as we apply this powerful text that we've looked at together. Number one, Recognize your need for wisdom and ask God. Recognize your need for wisdom and ask God. It's important that we maintain a spirit of humility, never thinking that we've reached the end, the end zone, so to speak, of wisdom. Part of it's just realizing the connection between wisdom and our ability to walk through trials in a way that honors the Lord. When we really define wisdom, it shines a spotlight on the fact that we don't have in the capacity that we would like to have. It's a key component of a righteous life. It's a key component of walking through trials with a, with a dependency on the Lord, with true, genuine joy rooted in His character and who He is. Secondly, don't mistake your knowledge for wisdom. Don't mistake your knowledge for wisdom. That's a deadly trap where we, we sort of pacify our conscience by cramming more and more in it's like we, with every book we read, with every time we make it through the scriptures, with every verse we memorize, we're pacifying our, our conscience, saying, I'm becoming a godly man. And here's the thing. Those are means. The, the Word of God is the means through which the Spirit sanctifies us. But the sanctifying is not the addition of knowledge itself. It's the change of the life to live out the knowledge that we've gained. So don't 
mix those things up. Don't think of yourself as godly because of how many verses you can quote. Look to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Are you really growing into the character of Christ? That's what wisdom looks like. Please, finally, as we close our time, if you take nothing else away from this lesson, hear this. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What does that mean? It means this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then you might be very intelligent. You may be very smart. But you are not God. And you will not be God. Because wisdom is only a gift of God to those who are His people. The first place, the beginning place, the starting line for you this morning is to come to the place where you recognize you're a sinner before God that you desperately need God's forgiveness in His Son, Jesus Christ, but that God has made provision for you. That there is real forgiveness for all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble repentance and in faith that salvation is found in Him and Him alone. So man, if you're here this morning and you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to Him humbly. Humble yourself. Recognize your sinful state. Come to Him confessing, I need Jesus Christ. I desire to turn from my sin and to believe in Him and He will be saved. That is the starting place of walking in wisdom. And so I encourage you to start there this morning if you're not there. For those of us who are in Christ, may we have patience and prudence and may we reflect it in our lives and we are in the name of Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the power of your word, as it instructs us in the wonderful, marvelous truth. And we confess freely this morning that we are men who need wisdom. We, we need knowledge, certainly. We need to know more of the truth. But God, we need desperately your help to live it out, to apply it, that our decisions would reflect it, that our character would reflect it. God, help us to be committed to the truth and committed to working with all of our might to be transformed to it, recognizing that any ounce of grace comes from your sovereign and good hand to your church. Help us to be men who are tender towards our wives and our children, who lead them with steadiness, yet with graciousness. Help us to be men in the church who love your church, who seek to protect the unity of the church, and who lead well in the church in whatever capacity we're able to serve you faithfully that your church might flourish and grow again. And God, we ask for those who may not be in Christ this morning that today might be the day when they would humble themselves before you and be transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus.